from quantum physics to parapsychology, health, sociology, and philosophy, along with practical living. You are reminded of the possibilities in creating personal change, change that will impact our perception and the way that we engage with the world. So for an hour, we'll stimulate and expand the mind. So tune in on Mondays at 1 p.m. at 90.7 FM on KPFK and streaming live at kpfk.org. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. In today's headlines, Bruce's Beach and Section 14. Power to the People commentary, non-NATO international highlights, issues facing the rising economies of Africa, the ruling elite, and a tribute to Lawrence Reyes. This and more coming up. Good evening, I'm Angela Birdsong. CNN reports about Bruce's Beach, an oceanfront property in Manhattan Beach, California, that, has taken, that was taken from a black family, Willa and Charles Bruce, in 1924, and returned to their descendants in 2021, and will be sold back to Los Angeles County for nearly $20 million. Family members of the original landowners have informed the county of their decision to sell Bruce's Beach. Los Angeles County Supervisor Janice Hahn said in a statement, it's unclear when the sale will be, will be completed. Hahn said in a statement, quote, the seizure of Bruce's Beach nearly a century ago was an injustice inflicted upon not just Willa and Charles Bruce, but generations of their descendants who almost certainly would have been millionaires. William Charles Bruce purchased the land in 1912 for $1,125 and built a resort that offered black families a place to enjoy the California beach lifestyle. But the family faced intimidation and racial threats from white neighbors. In 1924, Manhattan Beach took the property, citing an eminent domain, and paid the couple a fraction of what they asked for. Bruce's Beach is now in a park with a lawn and a lifeguard training facility. In 1995, the property was transferred to Los Angeles County, and in recent years, county officials began taking steps to return the land to the family. Those efforts led by California Governor Gavin Newsom signing a 2021 legislation to allow for the return of the property to Bruce's descendants. Han said she fought hard to return the property to the Bruce family because she wanted to write this wrong and supports their decision to sell the property, which allows the family the financial resources that have long been denied to them. Han said to several news outlets, quote, this is what reparations look like, and it is a model I hope governments across the country will follow. Meanwhile, Slauson Girl further reports similar campaigns for those seeking compensation for descendants who were forced from their homes and land in L.A. County. Most notably, descendants of Latino families who were forcibly removed from their homes to make room for the Dodgers Stadium began pushing for recognition following the news of Bruce's Beach. Also in Southern California, hundreds of black and Latino families have also formed a coalition and filed a racial reparations claim against the city Palm Springs for, demol for demolishing an area known as Section 14 which was the primary residential area for people of color, 
within the one square mile neighborhood in downtown Palm Springs, owned by the Agua Caliente Band of Coahuila Nation from 1930 to 1965. Evictions began in late 1954 and continued for 12 years through 1966. Santa Barbara's Count County's homeless point in time count needs volunteers for one day for four hours to make a difference in homelessness. The point in time count sends teams of volunteers across Santa Barbara County on a head count of homeless people in order to gather an accurate census that provides a basis for grant funding by nonprofits and local, state, and federal governments. According to the Santa Barbara Independent, collectively, these grants go toward housing assistance, access to programs, and self-sufficiency for individuals and families who are experiencing homelessness. In 2022, the point-in-time count identified 822 homeless individuals living in the city of Santa Barbara with approximately 3,500 unhoused in Santa Barbara County. Although this effort is sponsored by a number of county organizations, such as the Santa Maria-Santa Barbara County Continuum of Care, County of Santa Barbara, and Santa Barbara Alliance for Community Transformation, some residents stated the homeless population continues to grow with millions of dollars going down the drain without any results with minimum help to the unhoused. Volunteers will receive only one hour of training held over video conference in order to perform this duty of counting the unhoused. In Los Angeles, the unsheltered count will begin on Tuesday, January 24th in the San Fernando and San Gabriel Valleys. Volunteers in East and West Los Angeles will count on Wednesday, January 25th. The count will wrap up Thursday, January 26th, in the Antelope Valley, Metro, and South Los Angeles, covering 4,000 square miles of Los Angeles County. Today, thousands of railway workers have gone on strike in Britain, to defend their wages and also to protect the entire rail system, which has been privatized by the Tories and Labor Party. Rail, Maritime and Transport Workers Union General Secretary Mick Lynch talks about the strike and what it means for his members and the public and the environment. Well, there are, people are obviously can't rely on the railway at the moment, but that's the, the situation when there are no strikes. The, the railways are completely disrupted because they're not being run competently, and the government ultimately is responsible for that. They charge the train operating companies with the task of running the railways, and they're failing. But they're failing while making profit. So they get to extract the profit that they need uh, to run their businesses. Some of it goes to subsidise the railways of Europe through... Uh, SNCF, the French Railway, the, the German Railway and the Dutch Railways, they're all making profit out of this chaos over here. Private sector companies such as First Group and Abellio and Go Ahead are also making profit. The rolling stock companies are making profit. Everybody's making profit and doing well out of the railway, apart from railway workers and railway passengers. Now that is a perverse and corrupt situation and it's got to change. So we need to get some talks to settle that, but we also need to examine the structure of the railway so that it can be run on a long-term basis in the interest of the people that use it, that need to use it, in the interest of the economy, and that includes the businesses that we all rely on for our work uh, and for our goods and materials. And it's also in the interest of our environment that we get a proper functioning railway and public transport system that makes us less reliant on cars, uh, carbon emissions and congestion, and that gives us a better environment that we can all operate in. And that's what the RMT will work for. And we hope that everyone else who's got an interest in it will work for that goal as well. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. And now to help start off the year, a commentary by Sylvester Rivers. I want to take a look at the political climate coming into the new year. 
but it's important to look at the past to understand the present and to chart the future. Before we look at the upcoming political climate, let's take a quick look at what got us here. The new Congress was just sworn in yesterday with a Republican majority in the House and a Democratic majority in the Senate. Looking back at what the U.S. political system has evolved into, we must go back to 2010. The U.S. Supreme Court reversed century-old campaign finance restrictions and enabled corporations and other outside groups to spend unlimited funds on elections. Creation of super PACs, which empower the wealthiest donors, and the expansion of dark money through nonprofits that don't disclose their donors. In 2016, Cory Booker voted against legislation to buy cheaper prescription drugs from Canada. Up through 2016, drug makers had given him $202,000 in campaign funds. Are American politicians trying to make substantive change, creating a better way of life for the average citizen? Or are they following the money to stay in power? This is former Congresswoman Cynthia McKenna. There is tremendous pressure inside the political process to make sure that the voters stay aligned inside either the Democrat or Republican parties. Why? Because both of those parties have been captured by special interests. In between the political decision makers and the people themselves, and there's no more special interest that has any more influence than the pro-Israel lobby. Every candidate for Congress at that time had a pledge. They were given a pledge to, to sign. So the pledge had Jerusalem as the capital city, uh, the military superiority of Israel. You sign the pledge. If you don't sign the pledge, you don't get money. Former Congresswoman Cynthia McKenna speaking several years ago. We are still burdened by corporate money, special interest, and the concept of manifest destiny. Some are celebrating the first black minority speaker of the House, Hakeem Jeffries. And then you had to deal with the first intibada, and Israel prevailed. And you, Israel had to deal with the second intibada, and Israel prevailed. And then missiles were flying in December of 2008, and Israel prevailed. And then missiles were flying in November of 2012, and Israel prevailed. And so I'm confident that when it's all said and done, we're going to stand together. Israel today, Israel tomorrow, Israel forever. God bless you. Jeffries is obviously getting money from AIPAC, American Israel Public Affairs, and other right-wing majority groups. How can effective policies be established when those policies are dominated by money? Republicans have chosen power over policy. If you look at their agenda, there's no policy. There's only continuous attempts to stay in power. They also focus on cultural differences, i.e. abortion, critical race theory, and religious extremism. What color was Santa Claus? What color was Jesus? I guess you could just wrap it up and say they focus on the continuation of so-called white superiority or white supremacy. Democrats, too, have been bought and sold. But I must say not to the extent as the Republicans. The Citizens United decision bolsters racism and bigotry by giving corporate America, which I don't recall ever being on the side of working class people, people of color, the disenfranchised, and the poor. So yes, I will make the claim that the Citizens United decision is racist to the core. But it does not deviate from how the United States was founded. White male dominance. So as we begin this new year, what are we focusing on? What was missed or neglected? On January 1st of this year, we neglected to acknowledge, arguably, the greatest revolution that ever took place. The Haitian Revolution. January 1st, 1804, the small, tiny black island defeated the French, one of the strongest armies at the time. Yes, that colonial army was going around the world, conquering and obtaining indigenous people's land, murdering those peoples. Haiti defeated the French and became the first black republic. The Haitian Revolution has been despised and attacked specifically by France and the United States ever since. Now it's saturated with American corporate interest, usurping the minerals and wealth. So what are our options to negate this ongoing corporate society fronting as a democracy? We cannot neglect any tactic. Voting is one tactic, 
But many say the Democrats and Republicans are the same. No, they're not the same. They changed face back in the day. The Republicans were the so-called progressive party. And I do say so-called. Don't forget the Dixiecrats in the 60s who couldn't stomach the civil rights legislation. So they moved over to the Republican Party in the latter part of the 60s. So voting is just one tactic of many to obtain justice and humanity. Just as during the 1700s, the Haitians fought with some of the colonial powers to weaken and ultimately defeat all of them. They did not care for any of those parties. They just wanted to weaken one side so all sides can be defeated. And in 1904, that's exactly what happened. So we must think of this nefarious United States empire as on its decline. It puts profits over people. It will not prosecute someone who lies to start a war. Uh, Bush, rather prosecutes and incarcerates nonviolent drug offenders. War is profitable for corporate America, as was the so-called war on drugs. Along with that, the narrative being expounded is that we are spreading democracy around the world, and then speak of someone else's human rights violations. As we go into 2023, we must not be fooled by this narrative. We are entering this new year with our eyes open, understanding what is in the people's interest. And let's not get bought off. That was Sylvester Rivers with a comment. Welcome to the KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Robert Ovitz, the author of We the Elites, why the U.S. Constitution serves the few, looks at who the framers of the Constitution were and how they were fearful of rebellions from blacks and small farmers, as well as how to control Native American lands. With the present attacks on the Constitution and gridlocks in Congress, this history is critical. When the organizers of the Constitutional Convention finally got approval from Congress, at, to call the convention, the different states, 12 of them, Rhode Island refused to participate, but 12 of them selected delegates. And out of those delegates, 55 of them eventually showed up. And those are who we call the framers or the founders. I don't really like the term founding fathers for obvious reasons. Uh, but of those 55 uh, who uh, participated, uh, they had something significant in common except for just a couple who left after a short period of time because they didn't really like what was going on. The folks that stayed behind to write the constitution were all men of property, different forms of property. Um, A significant minority of them were slave owners. Probably most of the rest profited directly or indirectly from slavery. Uh, There were also a number who were large creditors who were still trying to get repaid for the money that they loaned the states and the Congress during the American Revolution. And there were also very large land speculators like Benjamin Franklin and uh, Robert Morris and George Washington, uh, who had large tracts of land that were really tied up and they were unable to be able to carve them up and sell them off and make money from it. So the folks that show up there, they have one thing in common is even though they had conflicts over the kinds of property they all owned, what brought them together and what eventually gets embedded and written into the Constitution is that all their forms of property would be well protected by the Constitution. And there's been a recent controversy at the uh, Richard Arnotop murals. And in those murals at George Washington High, there was an effort to destroy them. You have uh, George Washington as a surveyor, uh, not only is he own slaves, but he's surveying Native American land to take it over. The issue of the slaves, uh, how did that count as far as wealth at that time? And what percentage of the wealth of the United States or the newly formed United States, where was the slavery uh, value at that time for the commodity and commodification of workers, of slaves? Well, slavery was really the foundation of this country's wealth. It was the most important and the most valuable form of property, human beings who were kidnapped from Africa and held in bondage were the most valuable form of property in the country. And until the 13th Amendment is ratified at the end of the Civil War, 
slavery becomes really the foundation of why the United States is as wealthy as it is today. There have been estimates of really how much wealth was produced by slavery in the last several hundred years in the United States, and it comes to many trillions of dollars. Uh, But at that time, the most valuable form of property was certainly slaves. But land came in really close as well. There was a lot of land, hundreds of millions of acres that had been stolen violently by genocidal settler colonialism, attacks on native peoples to exterminate them and steal their lands. But those lands couldn't really be exploited because Native Americans were still armed. They were still fighting, trying to protect uh, their way of life to uh, push back against those settler colonists. Um, And then also uh, the debts that were outstanding were tremendous, Uh, over $100 million in debt that was unpaid in dollar terms at that time in the 1780s. So those three were really interconnected. Um, And we can talk more about that. But they're interconnected because in order for the Constitution to be written, all those three forms of property had to be protected against the threats to elite property. Uh, that uh, many of the elites were facing at that time in several states. And that's really what brought them together were the threats from below uh, that really put their power in doubt. And one of those rebellions was the Shays Rebellion. Why don't you talk about how these rebellions actually were threatening the viability of the Confederation and um, you know the first formation that they had? Yeah, what I write about in the book is uh, the Constitution can't be understood without understanding what I call the three insurrections that were happening at that time. The first insurrection were slaves. Remember, a large number of slaves ran away. More joined up with the Loyalists and the British promised their freedom at the end of the Revolutionary War, and the British lived up to that. Uh, But a smaller number joined up with the revolutionaries and unfortunately ended up back in slavery. But those that slave rebellion that happened during the American Revolution never ended. And slave resistance continues all the way through the Civil War. And many of the framers were really worried about that because they were having a hard time suppressing them. So that's one insurrection. Another insurrection were the Native peoples. They were starting to organize across the continent into an alliance that were arming themselves. They had received arms from the French and the British as a result of the the French, so-called French Indian Wars. Um, The British were still arming some Native tribes, and they they were pushing back against settler colonists. And then the third insurrection was one that doesn't really get a lot of attention, and that's the small subsistence white farmers who were outside the cash economy for the most part. They were more inland, and they uh, grew what they ate, and they ate what they grew, and they were very much organized in a number of states and a very powerful force pushing back against the elites of their states. And so these three insurrections, in a way, drive the framers to Philadelphia. And you can see this, for example, in the way they talked about the Shays Rebellion. The Shays Rebellion emerged at the end of 1786 in the winter when a number of uh, Revolutionary War veterans had come home at the end of the war uh, to find that the uh, elites had imposed an onerous tax in the state of Massachusetts that could only be paid with cold hard cash, and that was in silver or gold. And there was a shortage of valuable coinage then, of of valuable minerals that were used to to coin money. And so they were protesting against these taxes that were resulting in the foreclosure of their farms and their homes and the taking away of their tools and their farm animals. And so they literally went home, put on the revolutionary uniforms, the revolutionary war uniforms. They picked up their muskets. And under the leadership of a a man by the name of Captain Daniel Shays, he was a captain in Washington's army and and a couple of other people, they organized into military formation and they marched on local courthouses and shut them down to stop the foreclosures, a lesson that we can learn uh, in periods like in the last crash a little over a decade ago when millions of people had their homes foreclosed. And they shut down local courthouses. And the governor was freaked out by this. And he and some elites put some money together and they hired a bunch of mercenaries and they put together a militia and they marched against the Shays rebels in the winter of uh, early 1787. 
And the rebels were defeated in battle, but they soon broke up into little guerrilla bands and they carried out hit and run attacks uh, for the next year, pretty much throughout New England. And we know that the Shays Rebellion was really on the minds of some of the framers who showed up because folks like Washington had been informed by General Knox, who was sent into Massachusetts to report on the rebellion. And they were very concerned that if the ordinary people, the small white farmers got organized, uh, they would be a threat to property. And so what they end up designing is a constitution that's incredibly undemocratic because they saw that uh, democracy was a threat to property. So why don't we talk about how they put the structure together to protect their power and wealth and how it's used today. But first of all, it was a problem because, of course, the revolution was a seen as progressive and also for the common person. Freedom, liberty, those are some of the slogans that were used for the American Revolution. How did they transform that so that actually you would be prevented from having liberty in, in the process of the construction of the Constitution? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and we can look right at what the framers thought about democracy. They saw it as tyrannical. They saw majority rule as a threat to property. They described the ordinary people by all kinds of derogatory terms like those sorts of people or the meaner sort or the people out of doors. In other words, the people who worked with their hands outside, like my father did. Uh, those were people that shouldn't be inside governing the country. And so they wanted to make sure that, like Madison said in Federalist Number 10, those who hold and those who are without property have ever formed distinct interests in society. So they wanted to make sure that these uh, folks couldn't have their hands on power and form democracies that Madison also called in Federalist Number 10, that when democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention and violent in their deaths. So the way that they made sure that what they end up creating is a republic, a system of, of mostly unelected representatives, rather than a democracy where the people make decisions directly, was they designed a system uh, where they separated the powers between three branches in between the national or what we call the federal government and the states. And then they created what they what we today call checks and balances, uh, which I call minority checks, where any economic minority, numerical minority here, I'm not talking about racial or gender or ethnic minorities, but any numerical minority, particularly the elites, could block a change that they don't like by defeating it just once in our system. So our system was designed so that if you want to make change, you have to win at every step in the system. A bill has to pass both houses of Congress, has to be signed by the president or override a veto, and has to survive a court challenge, for example. But if you don't like that change, if you're the if you're the economic minority, if you're the elites, you just have to defeat it once anywhere in the system, and you can block that change. So they designed a system that makes it incredibly hard to make change. And that's always been the bane of any reform movement and of the working class and of the labor movement for 230 some odd years, that it's incredibly difficult to make any change. And we know that the change that we get often doesn't look anything like what we were promised at the beginning. And that's by design. That's not an accident. That's not an unfortunate outcome, as we often hear. That's what the framers had designed the system to do. And it works perfectly as they designed it in the late 18th century. As the nations of the rising multipolar world take control of their own economies, some of the legacy issues of colonialism and the declining hegemonic order are being confronted by their governments. Today, Don DeBar takes a particular look at one of the fundamental issues facing the rising economies of Africa, namely the underdeveloped power grid. Strategically speaking, we cannot depend on hydro. That was the president of Uganda, Yoweri Museveni discussing one of the infrastructure challenges facing the nations of Africa as the continent charts the path to its development of a 21st century economy suitable for its over 1 billion residents. That problem being the underdeveloped potential of hydroelectric power, part of an overall continent-wide power shortage that has throttled development thus far. If you combine the Nile with the Congo River, with the Zambezi, with the River Niger in West Africa. I think it's about 300,000 megawatts or less 
for the whole of Africa. So, uh, if you take a country like uh, like the U.S., has got 1.5 million megawatts of electricity. In order to help accelerate the development of its power generating capacity, a number of the continent's nations have decided to produce nuclear energy over the next few years. This past November, the International Atomic Energy Agency said that Ghana, Nigeria, and Kenya could start producing nuclear energy in the next few years, and that the majority of African nations could be doing that by 2030. Abiyomi Ezekwe is the publisher of the Pan-African Newswire, an international electronic press service focused on the affairs of Africa since 1998. He spoke with Mubarak Hania, the host of the press TV program Africa Today, in late December about the possible role of nuclear power in the overall development of a power grid across the continent. Well, it depends on the uh, level of uh, other forms of energy and their efficiency. Uh, there are enormous problems, for example, in the Republic of South Africa uh, with their national uh, power system, and there have been proposals uh, for nuclear power. Uh, if, as long as it is safe and it is reliable, uh, then it could be an option, uh, although there are other forms of uh, energy such as solar and hydroelectric power as well, but nuclear power should not be ruled out uh, as a supplement uh, for the generation of energy, uh, particularly in countries that are trying to industrialize or who are semi-industrialized like South Africa. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa discussed some of the challenges facing his country as it attempts to reach its potential in developing additional power generating capacity. Investment plan, which we will be releasing for discussions, provides us with a, what I would call a blueprint to address these three challenges, recognizing that they are indeed inseparable and must be seen and addressed in totality. It is about addressing the global risks of climate change, which we experience annually, while also ensuring that as we navigate our way through this transition, we create jobs, new jobs, the new sectors that are going to have to accompany our transition as we move forward. When asked if Africa's industrial base was sufficiently developed to construct nuclear power plants, Abiyomi Ezekwe said, Yeah, they do, but they'll need uh, investment uh, from uh, outside uh, countries. Uh, as far back as 1964, uh, the government in Ghana under Kwame Nkrumah had uh, requested assistance uh, for the development of nuclear energy uh, from the United States. In fact, uh, when Malcolm X visited the country in 1964, he had sent a letter uh, to uh, the U.S. government through Malcolm X requesting uh, some assistance in regard to the development of nuclear power. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, it's going to take... Uh, foreign investment and foreign uh, technical assistance in order to make this uh, transition. Uh, the problem is, is that uh, the national economies still remain underdeveloped, and many of these uh, technicians and scientists and professionals are recruited uh, by Western imperialist countries to work for their uh, corporations and their governments. Uh, so there has to be incentives uh, to ensure that these uh, technical uh, personnel remain in Africa. In regard to uh, power generation, uh, the uh, sustainability of storing uh, capacity would be essential. Also, uh, uh, industrial, uh, well, actually light industrial agricultural production of uh, crops uh, would also be uh, contingent upon the uh, nature of the power systems and the capacity of the power systems. So I think uh, power generation is key today uh, in development of uh, agricultural production. And uh, agricultural production is essential because of the massive uh, drought, soil erosion, and other uh, problems associated with the agricultural uh, development in Africa. Also with the war in Ukraine, uh, there's been a uh, problem with supply chains as it relates to 
uh, not only agricultural products, but also inputs uh, such as fertilizer and machinery that is needed. Uh, so in regard to developing import substitution industries, uh, power generation would be essential. The African Union member states have a tremendous amount uh, to learn from Iran after 43 years of uh, an independent existence uh, during the revolution after 1979, uh, Iran has made tremendous strides uh, in regard to its own national development. And it has done it largely through a program of self-reliance. And I think that uh, the Iranian government and its use of nuclear technology for peaceful purposes uh, can be instructive for other countries around the world. This is despite you know, the slander and the allegations made by the United States that Iran is utilizing its nuclear capability for military purposes, yet uh, successive Iranian governments have rejected this uh, allegation. And I think this is something that uh, African states and other developing countries can learn from. In 2018, the last year that we could find reliable comparison figures, Africa's total power generation was 866 terawatt hours. By comparison, the EU total was 3,266, about four times that of Africa, and the U.S. 4,178, or about five times that of Africa. For KPFK, I'm Don DeBar. For KPFK, a Rebel Alliance News, here are today's international highlights with a special focus on non-NATO media. Anger boils in Italy as fuel prices rise again. Press TV correspondent Max Civili reports from Rome. The start of the new year has brought bad news for the Italians. The average price of unleaded petrol at the pump in Italy has once again surged, increasing by over 15 cents. That is about 15 percent more compared to December 31st. The latest hike is due to the expiration of measures introduced in May to mitigate the nefarious effects on Italy's economy of an exceptionally high increase in the cost of energy that followed the start of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. The price of unleaded petrol stands now at about 1.8 euros per litre, while that of diesel has reached almost 2 euros. The increase in fuel costs at the turn of the new year is mainly due to the reinstatement of the full rates of excise duty and VAT on petrol, diesel and LPG that the former government led by Mario Draghi introduced last year. The spike is also due to the higher cost of mixing biofuels with petrol and diesel as required by the law. Experts fear fuel prices might even increase farther after February the 5th when a European Union ban on Russian oil product imports kicks in as part of sanctions against Moscow over the war in Ukraine. This follows a ban on Russian crude that took effect in December. With a population of 59 million and about 40 million circulating vehicles, it is easy to understand how vital is the role of road transport in Italy. It accounts for three quarters of all land transportation of goods. It goes without saying that the country's rising fuel costs for both petrol and diesel will have dreadful consequences for medium and small businesses and for everyday people. While wages remain the same, fuel in general, energy costs keep rising. I'm very worried, too much uncertainty. What worries me the most is the fact that wages remain unchanged while the cost of living is skyrocketing. I have four kids and we are struggling to make ends meet. Higher fuel prices further swell living costs for people in Italy as electricity and gas bills have increased by about 300% since September. Italy was expecting to raise almost 10 billion euros from measures targeting the super profits made by energy companies that benefited from the surge in oil and gas prices. So far, only one quarter of that amount has been paid to the tax office. As North Korea said it planned to vastly increase its nuclear arsenal this year, South Korea's president has said plans are afoot to conduct military drills with the United States involving nuclear forces amid rising tensions in the region. 
Frank Smith in Seoul has the details. North Korea and South Korea both rang in the new year with missiles. North Korea launched several ballistic missiles over the weekend, with leader Kim Jong-un unveiling a new shorter-range design to carry tactical nuclear weapons. South Korea unannounced Friday launched a solid-fuel rocket it says is designed to place a spy satellite in orbit. North Korea launched a record number of missiles in 2022, more than 90. This comes as South Korea inaugurated a new leader in May. President Yoon Suk-yeol has implemented a hard line against Pyongyang, including strengthening the country's alliance with the United States. South Korea's President Yoon also restarted large-scale joint military exercises with the United States, with plans to conduct 20 live-fire drills this year. Some South Koreans believe more live-field exercises are necessary. The South Korea-U.S. joint training is a must. Even when I was in the military, I did that joint training with the U.S., but the computer-simulated war games were not effective at all. There needs to be more active, live and practical training. Other South Korean people want negotiations. Before increasing or even maintaining defense spending, I think it's important to have a conversation, since the problem with North Korea is so emotional, because we are a divided country separated by war. At a party meeting last week, the North Kim promised to increase Pyongyang's nuclear deterrent in the coming year. While in South Korea in 2022, the U.S. lifted restrictions on Seoul's missile range and payload and established an American Space Command to better surveil the region. Victor Gao, vice president of the Center for China and Globalization, says the military exercises will only escalate the already heightened tensions on the Korean peninsula. Countries like the United States and ROK also need to really think about why DPRK had to develop its nuclear weapons. I think DPRK concluded that it needed the nuclear weapon to prevent the color revolution that the United States has been doing to many other countries, to prevent a kind of military assault on DPRK aimed at overthrowing the DPRK government. And therefore, I think it really takes the two to tangle. The United States in particular and DPRK need to negotiate with each other, resort to diplomacy to solve the nuclear weapon program on the Korean Peninsula. But now if the United States wants to join the military exercise with the ROK forces using nuclear weapons in addition to strategic bombers, this is not helpful in achieving denuclearization on the Korean Peninsula. It will make nuclearization and nuclear weapons uh, and the potential conflict on the Korean Peninsula more likely. Using nuclear weapons and strategic bombers to join in the exercise involving uh, ROK and on the Korean Peninsula should be condemned because otherwise it may actually uh, contribute to completely destabilizing the situation on the Korean Peninsula. This is the last thing that countries in that part of the world want to see. In the past year, India has emerged as a power with eyes set on becoming a stakeholder in a multipolar world. And the country's officials have made clear that it will not be pressured by any state. I bring to you the greetings of 1.3 billion plus people from the world's largest democracy. We don't need to be told what to do on democracy. We are resolved to make India a developed country in the next 25 years. We will liberate ourselves from a colonial mindset. Externally, this means reformed multilateralism and more contemporary global governance. So somebody said India is buying a lot of oil from Russia. I said the Europeans buy more in one afternoon than I do in a quarter. I have a moral duty to my consumer. India will respond according to its supreme national interest. Look, let me make it very clear. India will buy oil from wherever it has to for the simple reason that this kind of a discussion cannot be taken to the consuming population of India. People need to understand if you can be considerate of yourself, 
surely you can be considerate of other people. So if a Europe says, uh, look, uh, we have to manage it in a way in which its impact on my economy is not traumatic, uh, uh, that, that freedom or that choice should exist for other people as well. Countries in Europe and the West and the United States are so concerned, why don't they allow Iranian oil to come into the market? Why don't they allow Venezuelan oil to come into the market? I mean, they've squeezed every other source of oil we have. And then say, okay guys, you must not go into the market and guess the best deal for your people. I don't think that's a very fair approach. You could ask why would anybody in Asia trust Europe on anything at all. Europe has to grow out of the mindset that Europe's problems are the world's problems. But the world's problems are not Europe's problems. And those were today's highlights from non-NATO media. For KPFK, I'm Paulina Vasilyev. KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. The Electronic Intifada is an independent news outlet dedicated to the Palestinian struggle for self-determination. Host of the Electronic Intifada podcast, Nora Barrows-Friedman and Asa Winstanley were recently joined by Executive Director Ali Abunima, who talked about some of the top stories of 2022, including Israel's escalating violence against Palestinians, the rise to power of the extreme far right, the resurgence of Palestinian resistance and global solidarity, Israel's murder of Al Jazeera, journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, and the state of journalism and ongoing Western complicity in Israel's apartheid system. Here is part of their conversation. Let's start by talking about the unmitigated violence that Israel has inflicted on Palestinians over the last 12 months. Around 200 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli forces and settlers so far this year or have died from injuries sustained in previous years. And just some statistics from our recent reporting, uh, at least 34 Palestinian children have been killed by Israeli forces or settlers in the West Bank so far this year. Additionally, 17 Palestinian children were killed during Israel's three-day offensive in the Gaza Strip in August. At least nine of them were killed in Israeli strikes and others were killed by rockets fired by armed groups in Gaza or in ambiguous circumstances. We also saw the execution of Palestinian journalists, most uh, notoriously the murder of Palestinian-American Al Jazeera reporter Shireen Abu Akleh in May. And the U.S. State Department continues to dismiss and ignore forensic evidence that an Israeli sniper intentionally murdered her. Ali, we saw the killing or injuring of Palestinians nearly every day this year, including during the August attacks on Gaza and the political fueling of this violence by Israel's fascist government officials. Can you talk about Israel's sweeping policies of violence in 2022 and what stands out to you when we look back over this year? It seems like it's almost a daily ritual to wake up and see the names and faces of the Palestinians who've been killed overnight, as it is overnight for us sitting, as I am in the U.S., in towns, villages, refugee camps, cities across Palestine. And this year, Israel killed more Palestinians in the West Bank this year since at least 2005. That's when uh, OCHA, the UN agency, UN humanitarian agency, started keeping these statistics. And that includes more than 50 children, as you uh, noted, uh, Nora. This violence is escalating uh, because it's a direct consequence of Israel's continued theft and expansion on Palestinian land. Settler colonialism is an inherently violent process. And uh, so there's no such thing as Israeli settlements, Israeli colonization, uh, Israeli dominance of the Palestinians without this brutal violence. And at the same time that the violence has been escalating, it seems that uh, Western governments and uh, Arab governments, who are generally client regimes of the world, are also escalating their rewards for Israel. So there is not there are Israelis who perpetrate these uh, killings, or for the Israeli state and its leaders, they can carry on with killing as usual. 
there's been a lot of focus over the last uh, month or so about the new Israeli government uh, officials and, you know, a lot of hand-wringing, oh, this is the, you know, the most extreme government, you know, we've ever seen. But but as as you've been saying, you know, this is just a continuation. I think last year you said something like it's a, a different executioner, but the same acts. Um, can you talk a little bit about the significance of Itamar Ben-Gavir and the formation of this new uh, Israeli government? Right. As we're speaking, Nora, Benjamin Netanyahu is putting the finishing touches, so to speak, to his new coalition. And as I think viewers and listeners will know, it's going to include Itamar Ben-Gvir and Bezalel Smotrich, the two leaders of this party called uh, Jewish Power or Jewish Strength, depending on on how you uh, translate it. And who are these people? Well, Itamar Ben-Gvir is uh, notorious as a inciter of violence against Palestinians. He's a settler. He's often in Hebron, where some of the most violent and extreme settlers are. And I think for me, the most uh, indelible image of Itamar Ben-Gvir is from when he was uh, younger. There's Israeli television footage of him in 1994 or 1995, excuse me, dressed up for Purim as Baruch Goldstein. Who is Baruch Goldstein? He is the American uh, Jewish settler from Brooklyn who, uh, on February 25th of 1994, on the third Friday of Ramadan, went into the Ibrahimi Mosque in Hebron and machine-gunned to death the 29 Palestinian men and boys as they were praying. And a year later on Purim, Itamar Ben-Gvir dressed up as Baruch Goldstein, this mass killer, and said on Israeli national television, he's my hero. Now, if you think that was just some kind of youthful foolishness on behalf of uh, Ben-Gvir, that's not at all the case. As recently as 2019, he bragged about keeping a a uh, portrait of uh, Baruch Goldstein, the mass murderer, on his living room wall. And he continues to incite, directly incite violence against Palestinians. As recently as October, he showed up in occupied East Jerusalem as settlers were attacking Palestinians. And Palestinians in their neighborhoods and refugee camps were, you know, exercising their right to protest, to fight back. Ben-Gvir showed up brandishing a pistol and urging settlers, if Palestinians throw stones, shoot them. Just, you know, shoot them in the street, like, you know, the same tactics of British colonialists in South Africa or India or French colonialists in in Algeria, but this is 2022. And Ben-Gvir and Smotrich, who is no different, I mean, these are cut from the same cloth, are uh, slated for top uh, so-called national security posts in Netanyahu's government. So, of course, this is causing a lot of hand-wringing, particularly among sort of liberal Zionist uh, Israel lobby groups in Britain and in the United States and other countries, because, you know, they're saying, oh, Ben-Gvir is a step too far. Israel's uh, lovely, precious democracy is being threatened by uh, ogres uh, like Ben-Gvir and Smotrich. But the reality is the violence and the hatred and the incitement of Ben-Gvir and Smotrich has always been Israeli government policy and practice. I mean, the people who carried out the massacres in Deir Yassin and Tantura in 1948 were not any different from uh, Ben-Gvir and Smotrich. The difference now is that Israel has discovered that it will enjoy unconditional support no matter what it does. It's I'm kind of reminded of when Donald Trump famously said, you know, I could shoot someone de- dead in the middle of Fifth Avenue and it wouldn't affect my popularity. And he was right for at least a very long time. And Israel <laughs> is really, in, it's the Donald Trump of nations in that sense. Israel can do whatever it wants to Palestinians. 
And U.S. politicians, particularly top Democrats, of course, Republicans, but top Democrats uh, and British politicians, whether it's Keir Starmer, uh, who leads the Labour Party, I'm sure we'll talk about that, European Union leaders, whoever it is, the leaders of the United Arab Emirates. Uh, ben Gvir was uh, warmly welcomed at the um, United Arab Emirates, Emirates Embassy in Tel Aviv recently. There are photos of the ambassador there. Uh, warmly greeting him. So Israel's discovered it could do what it wants, and the unconditional support from governments will continue. So why disguise it? Why not put somebody who, who has a uh, loving portrait of Baruch Goldstein on his li living room wall in charge of national security? From Israel's perspective, there's no downside. What it is, KPFK, I'm Angela Birdsong, and here is your Rebel Alliance News Community Calendar Tips. NAMI Urban Los Angeles Monthly Speaker Night presents Mental Health and People of Color, an Exploration of Truths, Falsities, and Facts for Empowerment with Daniel Myatt, Thursday, January 5th, 7 p.m. online with Zoom. To register, go to NAMIUrbanLA.org. Althea Moses Fitness Club, the first Saturday of every month, 9 to 10 a.m. at Edward Vincent Jr. Park in Inglewood in front of the tennis courts. For more information about this Saturday, January 7th, call 310-740-1157. Meet up with Alzheimer's Awareness Matters for a candid discussion on Alzheimer's disease and Black and Latino communities as experts discuss risk factors, caregiver concerns, and more at the Gathering Spot, 5211 West Adams Boulevard in Los Angeles, Thursday, January 12th, 6.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. All attendees will receive two free tickets to the phenomenal stage play Unforgettable at the Wilshire Ebell Theater on January 14th. To register for Alzheimer's Awareness Matters at 323-486-3012. That's 323-486-3012. For info about the stage play Unforgettable, go to unforgettableplay.com. And that's your um, calendar tips for today. And I'm Angela Birdsong with More Than a Sparrow Productions. Pedro Baez gives a tribute to a beloved member of the KPFK family who transitioned last week. And now a tribute to Brother Lawrence Reyes. Community activism is something that you always have to admire and respect. And certainly Lawrence Reyes, who left us last week, was all of that and more. He was a senior community worker, substance abuse counselor at the Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health. And he also was involved with issues like immigration, people-powered radio, and many, many other projects. He didn't ever say no when you needed his help. He helped me do a program on an anniversary celebrating the Young Lords. And he also assisted me in getting one of the founders of the Young Lords, Cha-Cha, to come on the show. In 2020, when the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors announced racism as a public health crisis, he was providing health services in the greater Los Angeles community and doing his part in addressing this crisis head on. Two years ago, the Los Angeles County Department of Health Services started an equity, diversity, inclusion, and anti-racism plan. This was done to to help people work together and build a world of health care that is fair and just for our patients and staff. That was Lawrence Reyes. At KPFK, he was very tireless. He worked behind the scenes in production. He was part of the Listener Sponsor Board, the Community Advisory Board, and many, many other aspects in the operation of day-to-day -day of KPFK. Lawrence Reyes was someone that we all loved, admired, and were very glad to call him a friend and a brother. Rest in peace, my brother. You earned it. And as you've always said, despierta boricua, defiende lo suyo. Palante. For Rebel Alliance News, this is Pedro Baez. I'm Angela Birdsong, and you've been listening to KPFK Rebel Alliance News. We're excited to bring back progressive news to Southern California and connect with the local community. 
We hope you'll join us again tomorrow, 6 p.m. Until then, as Yoda says, may the force be with you and have a great evening, Los Angeles. Thanks to our engineer, Wendell Handy, and all the Rebel Alliance news contributors. Hello, my name is Kirby Washington. I've been listening to KPFK since 